Well, hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I don't know if you're crazy for being inside right now or just amazing, and I'm going to choose the latter. Okay, I really respect your choice. Uh, I kind of wish there's a way to like break a skylight open in this place. That'd be pretty awesome, but there's not. So here we are, and you're stuck here uh, for the next two hours as I preach. I hope that you uh, enjoy it. Uh, I'm really, I honestly am excited that you're here. I'm very thankful you're with us. And I know too, I've just heard from people almost every single weekend in this Winning the War in Your Mind series of, of how it was needed and they've been waiting for something like this and, and how it's speaking to them and the war that's going on in their minds. So I just know and trust, just like Blake said, he's going to speak again uh, today. And it's funny because at first you kind of pitch like, hey, we're going to talk about the war in your mind. Or, hey, we're going to talk about living with fear or living with worry or living with like a sense of panic in life. And, and some people are like, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't, I'm not afraid. I don't have like regular senses of panic or fear as I drive around Byron Center or go to my job. I don't feel that way. But, but I know that for almost all of us, statistically, this is true, but even just anecdotally talking to so many in our church that this has been uh, powerful for, that a lot of us may not live consciously with those things, but subconsciously, like they kind of ride under the surface of our minds and they may be almost indetectable. Like we can't, we don't know that they're there, but they are. And uh, we're talking about, uh, I was talking about this with somebody and I was like, they were like, I don't, I don't feel like I've ever been in a situation where I've like panicked or like been truly afraid. Uh, and so I was like, what if we could kind of recreate that? You know, what if we could recreate that feeling or that sense so that everyone would be on the same page? And, and if you were truly like you're listening to a sermon, you're at like a regular Sunday morning, I think panic would feel a little bit like this. You know what I'm saying? We're good. We're good. Uh, we're good. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, now, what I planned to do before what we just did is I was not going to tell you, okay? I was not going to tell you I was going to do that, and all of you would have legitimately probably had some level of fear or panic, or like, what is happening? Uh, but we didn't do that. I care about you too much, as in Lindsay cares about you too much. Uh, to, okay, that's what, I, that, what that actually means. But it's funny because, like, you, you just encounter moments, and maybe you've had to have a moment like that where it's like a warning signal goes off on the TV or over the radio or you had to clear out a stadium or some event or, or there's a fire in the building you're in or something. You, you know kind of what those moments of panic feel like. But historically, too, you think about the last couple of years, all of us have been through a pandemic in which at the very early stages, I mean, think about March 2020, just a couple of years ago now, that there was this kind of introduction of panic into the widespread culture. And I love, I stumbled across this meme uh, uh, this week in preparation for this. I love this. Now, the great scholar, Len Goodman, here's what he writes. He says, it's never too early to panic uh, with a nice beach setting, right? So I thought that was funny. And then I started to think back. I was like, man, I remember like there were some really crazy precautions people took to avoid getting COVID back in like the early stage of 2020. Some of you recall this. Uh, here are two of my favorite masks I could find. Like these, one of these was in the New York Times. This was the first one, like advocating for us to buy these. So I didn't see any of these in Byron Center, shocker. But what I did find was, uh, I love that the guy is like so protective of COVID, but has like the phone. Like there's still a bit availability there, you know, that's his priorities. The second one is really funny too. This was in an airport. I love this because she has multiple hefty bags attached with different tubing. It's like incredibly sophisticated and confusing. But it's like, it was so clear 
super early on that there was like this widespread panic, like what's going to happen? And there were funnier ones that I, uh, some of them I just skipped over, but those were a few of the ones that I found. Now what happens when you panic is there is this almond sized piece of your brain that gets bigger. It's called the amygdala. Amygdala is literally Latin for almond shaped or almond. And this thing gets bigger and it grows as fear and panic set into your life. So there's literally this part but a part, uh, not just maybe a couple inches away from the amygdala in your brain is another part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. Now here, here's a picture of kind of where these are. So the prefrontal meaning actually in the front, cortex meaning kind of control center or availability to control situations. The, the amygdala kind of will take over. It's this is the fight or flight response is kind of in the amygdala. So in some ways, it's healthy, but many of us live with the amygdala ruling our minds, ruling our brains, to where when something happens that out, it causes us to be out of control or panic, the amygdala takes over. And this thing gets bigger and it grows and fear grows with it, whereas the prefrontal cortex controls and regulates emotion and regulates responses. Now, here's what science has said, and we already read this from the scriptures. We know thousands of years before the scriptures talked about this, but science now affirms two things. Number one, you can shrink the amygdala, like the fear-activated responder can be shrunk in your life, in your brain, and in the prefrontal cortex, the kind of control center for regulating emotions, for bringing peace and stability into situations can be rewired and renewed over time. Two of those things are true at the same time, where you can shrink the fear responder and you can actually grow or renew the prefrontal cortex. And the question I want to ask today is, if that's all true, can you wire your brain for peace instead of panic? Can you actually wire your brain for peace instead of panic? Now, I'm a pastor, and so naturally I would go to scripture. I would try to find, like, here's some examples. Here's a case study. Here's some great heroes of faith who have figured this out, who made this journey. And what you find is there are certain people who do this really well, and there are certain leaders, heroes of the faith even, who maybe didn't do so well. And I want to take you, you'd think like someone like a prophet or someone who was like called by God specifically in his generation to speak truth this guy should have it figured out. And look at the story in 1 Kings 19. Like, I want to take you to the prophet Elijah and his story. So if you have a Bible, a device, pull it out. We're going to interact with different parts of it. Some on the screen, some won't be. So if you want to get the whole story, you got to open the book or search the book, however that works. 1 Kings 19. And as you're turning to 1 Kings 19, what I want you to know is that in 1 Kings 18 is kind of the famous, if you've been around church, the famous Sunday school story where Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal, this kind of idolatrous nation that was opposing to the ways of God, opposing to the people of Israel, and who worshiped hundreds of other idols, hundreds of other little g uh, gods in their nation. And in this kind of showdown between God of Israel and their gods, God wins, and eventually this fire comes down on the altar, it burns it up, it's kind of this demonstration of God's power. And guess who's a lead character in that story? Elijah. Like he's there. He's the prophet. He's the one calling on God to defeat this other nation. And the enemies are literally slain on this mountaintop. It's an incredible story. You can go back and read it. This is Elijah. 
And so you'd think this guy's on a spiritual mountaintop. He's literally on a physical mountaintop. He's like in a really good place mentally. But look at what we read in 1 Kings 19. Here's, here's how the story goes. Now, Ahab, which is kind of this rival uh, leader, rival nation, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword of this other nation. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Quick translation, Jezebel wants to kill Elijah, okay? That's what's happening in the story. Jezebel is after this guy. He has shamed her nation. He has defied and defeated her, her gods, and so he deserves to die. Now, what I want you to catch is the amygdala kicking in for Elijah in verse 3. Listen to what Elijah's the response here in the text. It says, Elijah was afraid. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, uh, quick pause there. Beersheba in Judah is about 30 hour walk, 90 mile journey from where Elijah was in in the moment before. Now with beautiful sandals, the nicest Birkenstocks you can find, that is a painful journey. Like that is a long distance. Why is Elijah doing this? I mean, the text gives us a clue why he is terrified. He's afraid. He's literally running for his life even after experiencing the power of God on Mount Carmel. So he leaves his servant there while he himself goes a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, this kind of big little tree, uh, kind of glorified shrub that would have provided shade for people in the desert. He sits down under it and he prays that he may be rescued. Actually, no, that's not what he says, right? He prays that he would die. Now, I'm not a genius, but if I'm being chased to be killed, is the right answer to pray to die? I don't even get how that makes any sense, but that's Elijah's prayer. He's like basically suicidal in this moment because he feels like he has run out of options. He's got no peace. He's got no favor with God. Clearly, he's running away. His amygdala is taking up the whole space in his brain. He is totally afraid. He's being hunted. He's being chased. So eventually, after praying that honest prayer, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, later on in verse 10, he says, I'm the only one left. They're killing all the prophets. So I'm, I'm going to be next. Just take my life. End it. But the maybe obvious question to ask about the text in this story is how? How could Elijah, who a chapter before experience a mighty move of God, a tangible physical demonstration of God's power. How does Elijah get to this place? How does he get there? The only answer I can come up with, the only answer the text really provides is that Elijah was fighting a war in his mind. There was a mental battle. It was causing fear. It was causing depression. It was causing suicidal ideation. It was, it was causing him to feel like he had run out of options and run out of hope. Now, Elijah finds himself in this location. It says he went another day's journey after getting to Beersheba and Judah to a place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you know the Old Testament, is kind of the famous center location of the, the Ten Commandments being given to Moses. 
Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, encounters God's glory, and provides the law then to Israelite people. And they eventually live in, in, in kind of in commandment with that, and they follow that. And, and this mountain, this Mount Sinai becomes kind of a place. It's a, a reference point for where God reveals himself, where he shares his presence and reveals his glory to his people. And so this is where Elijah finds himself. Now, what happens in verse 11 is like one of the last things you would expect. In verse 11, listen to what the story says. The Lord said, go out, leave, leave your place on Mount Sinai. Go out and stand on the mountainside in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Listen to what happens next. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm, I'm seeing these rocks kind of come off the mountain. I'm ducking. If I had hair, it'd be gone again. Like I'd be ducking down, trying to like not to get hit by these rocks. But I'm like, oh shoot, I shouldn't have prayed for the Lord to kill me because now he's actually going to do it, right? He's like, these rocks are hurling across this massive windstorms being kicked up on the mountainside. But the text says the Lord was not in that. The Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there's this earthquake. And you're thinking, okay, like, watch my footing here. I'm going to get sucked into the earth. Like, I'm done. This is how I die. I asked for the Lord to kill me, and look at how he's going to do. He's going to suck me into the hole of the earth. But the Lord was not in the earthquake either. And in verse 12, it says, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Like Elijah's holy barbecue, and he's the meat, was not happening. Like the Lord is not in the fire. He doesn't get burned. He doesn't encounter God in the fire. But after the fire, listen to what happens. After the fire came a gentle whisper, gentle whisper. It's God's voice being communicated, his presence communicated, not through wind or an earthquake or fire, but through a whisper. Now, some of you may whisper during boring sermons. I'm sure you've never done that here. You're exempt. But if you ever have, you have to lean in to get physically proximate to someone to whisper. Have you noticed this? Like when you want to share something with someone, whether it's a spouse, friend, a roommate, you kind of lean over and you share it with them. You have to get physically close. This is why God whispers to Elijah. In the midst of the raging war in his mind, he does not provide a sign or a wonder, doesn't provide an earthquake, a windstorm, or a big fire. He provides a whisper. It's a nearness to Elijah. It's a closeness. He has to get close enough so Elijah can hear what he's saying. He whispers to Elijah. What strikes me too about this story is that in the moment, God does not fix Elijah's immediate issue. Like Ahab and Jezebel are still going. <laughs> They're still in pursuit. They're still chasing Elijah down. They are mad, they are angry, they are irritated, they cannot wait to end this guy's life. God does not just wipe them off the face of the earth here. That's not what fixes Elijah's problem or, or what resolves the war in his mind. But what does happen is God gives Elijah an immediate, powerful expression of his presence through the whisper. He speaks to Elijah, and God's voice brings peace, it brings calm, brings his nearness. Now, what it really hits me when you talk about winning the war in your mind of Elijah's stories, you can kind of pull out two lessons and one truth. And the two lessons, I think there's a negative and a positive, and I think there's a beautiful truth in this story and, and throughout the scriptures. But the first lesson is actually negative. <laughs> like, 
What I find striking about Elijah's story is he doesn't do this well. He actually forgets God's presence. He forgets it. And you and I would be like, well, if God was in the flesh, he came to me, he did something in my life, he healed me, I would never forget. But Elijah forgot. And Elijah was on Mount Carmel, called by God, sees enemies already slain in front of him. And then he's running for his life, afraid, because they're coming after him. He forgets God's presence. But the positive is a powerful lesson too. The positive is Elijah in this story prays an honest prayer. He doesn't pray a formula. He doesn't pray a beautiful liturgy. He doesn't sing an awesome worship song that he heard. He simply brings God his honesty, specifically, boldly just says, are you going to let me die? Like they're killing all my friends. They killed all the prophets before me. Am I next? Might as well let me die. It's an incredibly raw, honest, like presented prayer to God. And here's the truth, because what happens in the story, God whispers, eventually Elijah says, covers his face with the cloak, like God's presence and glory is so strong. It's a sign of reverence and awe and humility. But this is what happens when we pray, because a prayer-led life creates a peace-filled life. A prayer-led life creates a peace-filled life. This is what Elijah encounters. Like there's a connection for Elijah and throughout the scriptures, all throughout it, between prayer and peace. You will not get to peace without the path of prayer. This is how God has wired us and wired his, his creation. There's a connection here. This is why Paul, and we've been studying Paul, like this prison letter writ, written to the Philippian church. He writes about rejoicing and thanksgiving and be giving thanks in all circumstances and prayer and what it means to be full of joy in the midst of darkness. And here's what he writes in Philippians 4. This is verse 6 and 7. Listen to his words. This is Paul writing and says, Do not be anxious about anything which in a culture of anxiety that we live in, this is a counter-cultural statement. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. So the contrast is in no anxiety. There's actually in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Be honest with God. And here's the result, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. What we can understand as human beings the ability we have for ambiguity and mystery. He says, beyond all of those things, the peace of God will guard your heart and, keyword, your mind in Christ Jesus. Not just your emotions and feeling. It will actually renew and guard the control center of your life because how you think eventually will lead to how you act. And this is Paul's encouragement. He says, bring your requests. Another way to put this is like, be honest with God about your problems. He knows them anyway. Do not shield him. Do not sugarcoat it. Do not act like he is a fragile little person who you cannot share the raw feelings of your life. No, he's created you and loves you intimately. He, he desires a peace-filled life, but you have to go through the route of prayer. You have to be willing to be honest with God. This is why, and Paul has incredible credibility to say this. Like for Paul, he's literally finding himself multiple times in dark, cold Roman prisons, writing letters, talking about rejoicing, talking about Thanksgiving. I mean, when he and his friend Silas get chained up for preaching the good news of Jesus risen, they literally start to sing 
They start to praise. They start these Christian choruses. They're, oh God, the battle belongs, like karaoke style, like probably not even good. Paul's not a worship leader like Peter. Heck, he didn't have the skill. He made tents for a living. I can only imagine his voice. Like, but he's going after it. He is worshiping. He is giving his all. Why? Why does he pray? Why does he sing? Because a prayer-led life creates a peace-filled life, a peace-filled reality. Paul understood this because, friends, man, this is so true. And I wish this wasn't true, but it just is. That prayer will take you to places with God, solutions never will. Prayer will take you to places with God that an easy fix and quick resolution will not take you. That's a hard truth but I've personally experienced this and I know you probably have experienced it too. Prayer will take you to places with God, depths with God, understanding of God's love and his character and peace in a way that if you just got the job immediately, you would have never understood it. If you just got the spouse immediately or got the dream girl, dream guy you wanted immediately, you would never understand it. If you just got the money you needed or a quick raise or a promotion or to pay the bill and make sure there was no financial strain in your world at all, you would not understand it the way unless you didn't have it. Like prayer actually provides the way for us to encounter a deeper peace that ends up guarding our hearts and guarding our minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm not just making this stuff up either. Like neuroscience affirms exactly what we're talking about here. Like the smartest minds. I remember someone across this quote, Dr. Carolyn Leaf says this, and I want you to, this is so critical. Here's what she says. 12 minutes of daily focused prayer. Quick pause. How many people have said, I do not have time to pray? I'm just gonna ask you, do you have 12 minutes? The answer for all of us is, yeah, I do. I do. I watch that many ads on YouTube in a day, you know, (laughs) like 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight week period. So for a two month stretch can change the brain, renew the brain to such an extent it could be measured on a brain scan. This type of prayer seems to increase activity in brain areas associated with social interaction, compassion, sensitivity to others. It also increases frontal lobe activity as focus and intentionality increase. This is the the prefrontal cortex dominating and being renewed instead of the amygdala taking over. This is what's happening. And I've personally experienced this too. I mean, I have just over and over again just received from God what I felt just invitation to pray when it was like, stressful and, and tough moments of my life. I'm sure you have too. It's like that quiet prompting. But I remember a specific time. It was about, it was fall 2020. And in fall 2020, I had started my master's degree, which was a multiple year journey. Lindsay and I were praying and actively just seeking God. We wanted to start a family. It had been months since we wanted to do that. We we're praying around that. It was kind of on the heels. We were starting to reopen things. The school we were meeting in at the time, most of you remember this, like they, they opened the doors back up in September. We knew we were gonna be able to move back in and have services again and, and all that kind of stuff. COVID is still a thing. We got people in our church who are sick and, and struggling and stressed out and trying to manage all these things. Like Lindsay and I joke, I'm a terrible multitasker. Anybody else? Like basically I, I can only do one thing at a time. 
Like you, you will never get a sermon where I'm preoccupied <laughs> because I literally can't think about anything else. It's not because I'm amazing. I'm just literally like one task is all I can do at one time. Lindsay's the opposite. She can fake it. I mean, all of us are bad multitaskers, but she can do like three or four things really, really well. And I'm just amazed. Like she has side hustles. I have one hustle. It's like that kind of situation in our marriage. That's how it goes. And it's it's obviously kind of funny, and, and, and you can work your way around it when it's small things, like when your wife's like, hey, are you listening to me, or are you like looking at your phone? I'm like, I was doing both well. And she's like, I don't think you actually heard what I said, which is true. I'm a bad multitasker. Now, again, that's funny in those situations, but in big life situations, this can cause panic in my world. Those, those circumstances, those things I just rattled off, a child starting a family, praying for those who are going through difficult times in the church, reopening the church, starting a master's degree, all of these things. And I remember I was at uh, Frontline, one of our sister churches. I was there for meetings on a Tuesday morning and I had finished one, just finished the second one. And I'm sitting at the end of the second one and I just start to feel, maybe now I look back, it was probably a, a, like a mild panic attack. I just start to feel like my heart racing my palms are getting sweaty and I just feel like this mental sense of overwhelm. And I just said, I, I gotta get out of here. And I did the thing that any smart person would do in a moment of stress or anxiety. I was like, I have to get a burrito ASAP. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I have to find lunch quick. Cause I didn't know, I was like, maybe I'm just really hungry. Maybe I'm dehydrated, I just need to go get some food. And so I was like, I'm just gonna go. So I, I head down the street. I'm sitting at the restaurant and I just felt like a prompting from the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was just like as, as gentle as he is, it's like, you should, you should reach out to some people. Like, don't, don't just sit here and try to figure it out. And so I, I text immediately my two closest guy friends. I said, hey, Jason, hey, Evan. I just, I texted him. I said, I don't really know exactly what I need, but I'm not doing very well. Would you pray for me? And within like 30 seconds to a minute, Jason immediately pings me back with a voice, voice note, just praying over me, praying over my situation, praying the peace of God into my life. And, and a minute or two after that, Evan sends me kind of this block text of just prayer and words and encouragement. And I remember in that moment, sitting in that Qdoba all by myself, feeling the supernatural peace of God flood into my mind. The thing is, I didn't even ask for it. Like I, I didn't even personally pray. I just said, I'm not doing super well. I need to be honest with some people that I need prayer. I need someone to, to go to God on my behalf. And I can't explain it to you. This is like the beyond comprehension part of Paul's words. But I felt a supernatural peace that I desperately needed just flood into my life. Not to say those circumstances all dramatically changed. None of them changed. But, but I changed. God changed me. God did something in me. I was reading a, a book earlier this week and Pastor Steve Neff just wrote this, that the hope of God is that we would have much more of his mind than we are currently settling for. Much more, much more peace, much more courage, much more hope, much more understanding, much more empathy, much more boldness. This is the mind of Christ that he wants to give to you and I. And a prayer-led life creates a peace-filled life. It creates this reality for us. Here's what I get. A lot of us grew up in West Michigan. A lot of us grew up in church. 
When you hear that, it's like, yeah, that's why I go to church, so the pastor can pray for me. Duh, idiot. (laughs) That's what you're here for. But what I find really interesting is that God called ordinary people to pray extraordinarily. God called regular people. He, he, He chooses people who are weak and frail, who don't even look like they'd be leaders in the world, and he actually gives them a life that's rich and deep and and secret in some ways, that's rooted in prayer, and it creates a supernatural peace for people like, where did you get that? Where'd you find that? It's like the person who goes through cancer, but because they have the peace of God is completely different than the person who's freaking out thinking that their world as they know it is about to end. It's the, the family member who knows like the key to a, a healthy family and a healthy parenting journey is not more books or more conferences. It's actually having a life that's guarded by peace, by, by the mind of Christ. And friends, I... I personally, I'm not speaking for you, I do not want to live with this kind of suburban Byron Center spirituality that says I can take it or leave it. I want it all. I want it all. I want everything. Everything God has promised me, I want it. And I want you to have it. I want us to experience it. I want people to walk in, just like Blake said, and say, there is something different. It's not the fact that you can smell the dog groomer, right? <laughs> like, there's something actually different, you know? Like, Spiritually speaking, why? Because you and I have taken what God says about prayer and actually made it real to us and practice it. And it creates a supernatural environment of peace. So I love Elijah's response. What happens at the end of the story is he covers his face in reverence and on humility. Eventually God moves him on and he passes the baton down to Elijah who'll take on the prophetic ministry of Israel. And and it goes even farther than it could have gone with Elijah. It's this incredible missional aspect to the story, but it only happened, I believe, because Elijah was honest and specific with God about his prayer. He did not pray generic and vague prayers. Two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, as I think about being honest and specific, that really is the next step. I remember being called, uh, got a call from a friend and, and uh, she said, hey, my husband, Mark, some of you know Mark, he serves here. He just said, hey, he is not doing well. You need to come today. And I get those calls as a pastor, and I'm kind of like, this could really go one of two ways. It was one of those calls. And so I go to the hospital. I have to gown up. There's only a few people that can be in the room at a time. I sanitize my hands. I open the door, and, uh, and he is heavily sedated. They're not sure. I mean, his percentile was in the single digits of living. And I had been in hard rooms like that. I, I've seen dead bodies. I mean, I've, I've been in those environments, but this one felt particularly dark, hopeless. And I remember, it's not audible, but as lovingly and kind of sternly as God's spirit would give it to me, he said, do not pray a vague prayer. Do not pray a vague prayer. Don't go in there and pray generic. God, if you would, maybe you could like... Don't do that. Pray boldly, pray honestly, and pray specifically. And so we laid hands on him. And this past week, he was transferred downtown, expected to do a full recovery, to live out of sedation, healing, infections leaving his body. It is a healing that we were a part of. And I'm not saying that that's because I'm a great prayer. (laughs) I, I don't think I have like the gift of physical healing. But I I know that God used, and so many of you have prayed, if you know him as well, like 
So many of us have prayed those bold, specific, honest prayers. God responded and did something that only he could do. The doctor said was not going to happen. And I look at that and I think, wow, God, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you gave me the kick in the butt to be honest and specific, to be bold and believe that a prayer-led life creates a peace-filled life. So today, we're actually gonna practice what we're talking about. We're gonna give some space. Uh, I'm gonna invite you to stand because we're gonna, we're gonna worship here in a moment. I wanna pray over you in a moment. But I wanna give you an idea of what we're going to do. And I hope on some level this makes you a little uncomfortable because that's where you grow. In this, what we're going to do is we're, we have a couple needs before us as a church. Big things, things that you can't fix, I can't fix. Things that only the spirit of God could actually do if he answered and responded the way we're praying. And during this next song, Peter's gonna lead this. So you'll have a heads up on when it's coming. There'll literally just be a slide. And our staff team just said, what are like the four or five things we really could rally around and pray around as a church? And I'm gonna encourage you, especially if you're someone who does pray, someone who feels like they've taken a few steps forward in this. I'm gonna encourage you, and I'm gonna be doing this, to pray out loud, to pray boldly and specifically, honestly before God out loud. It may be the most important thing you do. And if you don't, you don't feel like you're there on the journey, you feel like you're just growing and learning, that's fine. You can listen or just pray in your mind. But there's gonna be a section of the song in which we're specifically asking God to do something that only he can do and believing in faith that he actually could do it. And so let me pray for us and then we're gonna jump into that moment together. Father, we just come before you uh, just like Elijah did at the end of the story with humility, with reverence for who you are, with awe for what you can do. And we just confess our 100% dependence on you. We thank you that it's you, Jesus, who's the author and perfecter, the beginner and finisher of faith. And we just stand before you in boldness, God. There's situations in our life too that feel dark, that feel like they have a low percentage of making it. And we're asking God that you'd step in, that you would intervene, that that through a simple, honest, bold prayer, you would bring a peace that is supernatural. We ask for this. We declare this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.